Well, Farwell, I'm not one for rumors, so I'm just going to address it right away. You were off this past weekend. Was it an upper body, right hand knuckle injury? Because that's what I had heard. I, I love the way that you described it all weekend long because you know that I was sitting in my basement, literally, listening to every single word that you and Mark Perry said. I like the way you put it. The The injury suffered while uh, sending out a tweet because I've been known to tweet a time or two. I would describe it if you want to be accurate and dispel all rumors. I will describe it as this general body soreness and COVID sucks. Just leave it at that. <laughs> I, I, listen, I'm not shy. It, this is the world we live in. It was, uh, it was not the most fun, but I am very pleased to be on the other end of not only the illness, but the isolation because you know me a little bit and you know that sitting around and doing very little is not exactly what I am best at. And I just, I, I can't wait to be free. So I'm glad to be free again. I don't doubt that. And, you know, I'm glad that you're doing well and that you're here on the podcast again and that hand is healing up. Yeah, and everything um, else. Yeah, and everything else. <laughs> I've had like three close contact scares this week. Three of them. So I, I, whoever injected me, great job because whatever you gave me is working overtime. Well, you know, and this is the thing, not to get too far down this rabbit hole, but again, you know me, so you know that, like you, I've been three times faxed. I've been wearing my mask and following rules. And apparently, I, I, I think they don't tell you this when you get your test results, but I'm, I'm guessing, just based on what I've been reading lately, that I am part of this sixth wave and the BA2 variant that people are talking about now. And all I know is it's got to be a real highly transmissible variant because... Again, three times vaxxed, wearing your mask, doing all these things, and still some way, somehow along the line, you end up getting it. And like you, I know lots of other people who have gotten it. At this point, I just feel like I'm about as immune as I can possibly be. Three vaxes and natural immunity now, baby. Let's go. You got to feel pretty comfortable. Eh? No masks over here. Forget that. Feeling so good at this point. Bring it on. Where do you want to go next? I mean, come on. I absolutely love it. Uh, it's good to have you back and uh, healthy. Um, some tough news for hockey fans and OHL fans uh, recently with the passing of Eugene Melnick, former owner of the Toronto St. Michael's Majors, Mississauga Majors. One of the key cogs in actually moving the OHL to Niagara because he bought both teams and wanted to move Toronto St. Mike's to Mississauga. So he bought the Mississauga Ice Dogs. Helped facilitate the move to Niagara. Um, he, he was one of those... There's lots to be said about Eugene, whether you like him or not. He was a bit of a polarizing person. Um, more so, I think, for his ownership of Ottawa than his ownership in the OHL because any owner that owns the Mississauga Steelheads or St. Michael's Majors, whatever you want to say, it owns the Mississauga OHL franchise is doing that for a labor of love because they don't get a lot of attendance, and it's something that we've talked about on this podcast at length. The first guy I thought of when I heard the news, uh, with no disrespect to Mr. Melnick's immediate family, of course, but is our friend and former podcast guest, Roger Lajoie, who was incredibly close to Eugene Melnick. And when you talk about the labor of love that it was for Mr. Melnick to be involved in this league, let's not forget the 2011 Memorial Cup when Mississauga St. Mike's hosted it. And we know, and it's it's a great story within the story that 
that just happened to be Owen Sound's championship year and the Bayshore South when fans were traveling down from Gray County to watch those games at what was then called the Hershey Center. But don't forget for one minute that you, you talk about Mr. Melnick being a polarizing figure and primarily that's around his ownership of the Ottawa Senators perhaps, but he cared passionately about the game of hockey generally and he wanted to be a part of a championship. And so you know... <laughs> whose money obviously was going into that bid in 2011 to make it work in a market where arguably a decade later, it's still not really working, but he said, look, here's my checkbook. It's open. Let's have a Memorial cup championship in the greater Toronto area. And he, he made it happen. You got to give the man credit for that for sure. Absolutely. And I mean, he's got daughters, he's got a wife sucks to see someone go that young. um, Even with all the success he had, uh, but it's, I think it's just important to remember that, you know, the polarizing character, yes, as a member of the Ottawa Senators, you can say whatever you want about that, but his time in the OHL, you know, as you, as you pointed out financially and just with work ethic and doing everything he could to try to make Mississauga hockey work in the OHL, he did everything he could before eventually selling off. And I just, yeah, it sucks to lose him. I, I felt bad for Raji media. I sent him, he was the first person I texted to just. Yeah, the, the things he said about, you know, Eugene on this podcast and obviously having Raj as a teacher and hearing about all the things that he and Eugene were doing together and the business ventures they were in and so on and so forth. It started off as a business partnership, but definitely turned into more of a friendship than a business partnership between those two. I met him in my role as a broadcaster for the Toronto St. Michael's Majors, the team that he had just purchased. We became friends. Um, I've worked for him many times as a consultant in a variety of ways. He paid me to be the team's broadcaster for many years. In 2011 and 12, I was the executive vice president of the Mississauga St. Michael's Majors. I helped broker the sale of the team to Elliot Kerr that became the Steelhead. So I ran the team that year for him. For two and a half years, I was the vice president in Belleville, uh, working for Mr. Melnick as he owns the team, obviously. And now I'm back in Ottawa as uh, director of marketing of the Ottawa Centers and actually living here in uh, Ottawa most of the time now. So I got kind of the hat trick courtesy of Mr. Melnick, and thank you, uh, Eugene, of, of working in the OHL, the AHL, and the NHL. And boy, I tell you, 20 years now, 21 years, I've known him. What a wonderful guy he's been to me and my family, and I, I got memories and stories. And we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't at least take a moment to pay tribute to the man that did mean a lot to the game of hockey, specifically, of course, what we've already outlined here in the Ontario Hockey League. One of several things that we have to get to and cover off before we get to our guest this week who finds himself as the general manager of a team that makes its debut in the CHL top 10. So that's all to come. We're going to talk a little bit of uh, London Knights and Tony Strongest, some more Midwest division, uh, lots to the officiating combine. But before we even get there on a, on a much brighter note, uh, an official OHL stories welcome to our first sponsor on this podcast. Let's welcome aboard the folks at Waterloo Region Crime Stoppers. Now, Popey, I don't know about you, uh, and I'm, not, I'm never that guy that's like, oh, the inmates are running the asylum, crime is out of control, and this sort of thing. But the reality is that, that crimes happen in our community, and, and there are two things that, that organizations like police services and like Crime Stoppers are, are working against, and that is uh, the fear of, of somebody who may witness a crime to, to actually get involved in it because they, oh my gosh, what happens to me? Or just the apathy, like, oh, I saw something happen, but it's not my problem, 
sort of thing. But we know that when things are happening in our community, it's it's all of our responsibility to to respond to them. And Crime Stoppers makes it really easy to do that because it is completely anonymous. So you you give a call to one eight hundred two 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 tips, and your your anonymity is assured. So you can tell about a crime that that might be happening like in progress or, or you, you are aware of something that might happen, whatever the case is, you are kept anonymous. Crime Stoppers can pay up to $2,000 for a tip that leads to an arrest. And it is really that easy to play an active role in the safety of your community. So again, that number 1-800-222-TIPS or go online to waterloocrimestoppers.com. You can check out all kinds of great information right there. Find out what's going on in the community policing wise and how you can submit even a tip uh, online through waterloocrimestoppers.com as well. It's a volunteer-run organization. They raise the money to pay out those tips through fundraising and whatnot. So uh, we're happy to have them on board as supporters of our podcast, and we want to support the work that they're doing in our community. Absolutely. They do great work and great people behind Waterloo Region Crime Stoppers. But I don't even know if they, Mike, could stop the Owen Sound attack right now. <laughs> somebody call somebody because the run that Greg Walters has the attack on it started with i think it was six maybe seven i'm pretty sure it was six wins in a row consecutive but anyway what what they're at right now by my math is a run where they have lost just once in regulation in their past 16 games three extra time losses in there be it either overtime or shootout but you do the math 12 regulation wins one regulation loss, three extra time losses in their past 16, 27 of 32 points. And as we record this right now, in, in striking distance, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but the Owen Sound attack are in striking distance of the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds for fourth place in the Western Conference. That team is a buzzsaw right now. Are they ever? What's going on up there? I want to know why. Nick Chenard, or is it the, the three-headed rookie monster that they have up there? Petrovsky, Barlow, and Gandon? probably in large part to their success because they're carrying the load offensively up there. I think so. And I thought that's what you'd want to highlight because I know you're a big Colby Barlow guy and understandably so, but that, yeah, three-headed rookie monster, as you put it, to me, that's the straw that stirs the drink. We've talked about it on this podcast before, Ray McKelvey, right? The the McKelvey name is, is synonymous with the Owen Sound attack organization. And when Ray says to head coach Craig Walters, hey, have you ever thought of putting the three rookies together? Craig says, that's not a bad idea, right? Why don't we do that? And here they are. Again, one regulation loss in their past 16. I just love the story that, yeah, three rookies, you know, having breakout seasons, it's awesome to see, like, monster seasons for rookies in the OHL, and there's three of them on the same team. But the Ray McAlvey part is just so funny to me. Like, like of course, of course, right? Sure. Like, tied with this organization for decades, and – you know, getting longer in the tooth, kind of taking a step back from the day-to-day stuff, but throws in a little wisdom every now and then. And of course this works out like this. Like I'd be calling Ray every week. What do you think today, Ray? And also pick some, pick about six to eight lottery numbers for me, if you don't mind, please. Cause I wouldn't mind playing those. The guy's just a hockey genius. And um, I love to see it. I love to see anytime Owen Sound succeeds because it's one of my favorite markets for a plethora of re- uh, reasons. And I think when things are going well in Owen Sound, things are going well in Neil. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And, and this, the little market that could, right? I think it's a great example in the Ontario Hockey League. And even as, as good as they're going right now, just look at the future. Look at the next couple to a few years with this three-headed rookie monster right now up in Owen Sound. It looks, it looks pretty bright. 
Uh, as we stay in the Midwest division and shift gears, I know you're a big fan of the, the 10 and two, the skating of Tony Strongest. And he did it not once, but twice. I saw it as the highlight of the night or one of the highlights of the night on uh, Sportsnet central, but Tony Strongest is just uh, a man possessed right now. He's a cheat code. Like it really is a cheat code in a video game. He's able to do stuff that no one else can do. And like, you see him wind up behind the net like that. And he goes into his 10 and two and every player on that ice automatically goes, I don't want to be on a highlight. <laughs> we low need light to stop. for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. They're low light, his highlight. Exactly. Yeah. They're like, I don't want to be on this kid's highlight reel. Like it's wild how dangerous he is with the puck. And when you put him with guys like Luke Evangelista on his line and, of course, they're one of the top lines in the league. But I, I just thought someone said to me that night it happened and they said, oh, did you see Strange's did it again? And I thought to myself, oh, did he score another cool goal? Like, let me see. There's no way he did that again. And then I watched it and I went, oh, he did do that again. Like, this kid is insane right now. The confidence he must have right now for the London Knights, even through their struggles right now without Brett, without Brett Brochu and net, I think the confidence level of Tony Strange's is probably through the roof. Something else that ties into the London Knights that I wanted to mention uh, on this podcast again, before we get to our guest, but the London Knights and those struggles that they're having, they have struggled all season long against the Sarnia sting. And I'm not sure if we mentioned it on the podcast last week, but I think any OHL fan knows that the Sarnia sting hung seven Seven goals on the London Knights, not in a game, but in the third period of a 10-4 win a couple weekends ago. And then I couldn't help but notice when just looking at the box scores the past this past weekend, Sarnia got Sarnia'd by, of all teams, the Saginaw Spirit, who scored six times in the third period to force overtime and then won it in OT 9-8, to eight, which just, it makes me shake my head. Benjamin Godreau in for all of them, which surprised me a little bit. But when you look at the way the goals were coming fast and furious, et cetera, but it was kind of interesting to me that one week Sarnia puts up seven versus London in the third to win 10 to four. The next week they surrender six in the third to go to extra time versus Saginaw and lose it nine to eight huge win for the spirit, obviously, but a little bit concerning. And then when I got a little bit deeper into it, I I heard the post game comments from head coach Al Latang in Sarnia. And it reminded me of something that I know we talked about on the podcast before, Chris. And that's what you and I have kind of started describing as this, the shyness that's maybe in the league right now. Soft is, is just not a good word. It's not, it's probably not the right word for a variety of reasons, but we know that the game is just a different game right now. And, and maybe there is more shyness when it comes to physicality, certainly when it comes to dropping the gloves, but what stood out from Latang's post game comments following that loss for the sting he said he couldn't find a guy I'm, I'm paraphrasing here but he couldn't find a guy that would block a shot if you want to win those games or you want to protect leads late when it's a one goal game before sarnia gets their sixth of the period he said i had my guys out there to block shots and i couldn't get a guy to block a shot for me and i wonder if that doesn't tie in even a little bit more to this overall shyness that we're, we're seeing in the game what price are you willing to pay to win a hockey game it's a, it's a great, great way to look at it. Um, just because I think that it probably does lead into the, the shyness that we talked about. Guys aren't willing, you know, to take the pain of blocking a shot just for two points. And 
when you look at where Sarnia is in the standings and you're not getting guys to block shots trying to get into the playoffs, what are they going to do when they are in the playoffs? You know, so it's concerning, I'm sure, for for Coach Latang, And it's just, a, it could just be a one-off too. You know, like they just didn't feel it that day. But you got to think that if you're in the OHL, you're a step away from the show. Like you have to always remember that in the back of your mind. That as much fun as it is to be in the O, it's a lot more fun to be in the show. <laughs> and in order to get there, you got to block some shots. You got to take that punishment. You got to go the extra mile. And I just think nowadays we don't see a lot of that. There's not a lot of guys that are, you know, willing to be that penalty killer, blocking shots, playing that role, the greasy role that doesn't get a lot of credit. And there's not a lot of guys that are willing to play that role. Or maybe it's just not a lot of guys that have identified that, hey, my skill set in minor midget or major bantam or whatever it is, my skill set allows me to score 40 goals there. It's not going to let me do it in the O. I got to find something else to get to that next level. Maybe you have to find yourself a spot in that bottom six and play that tough shot blocking role. I know that guys that do block shots take a great deal of pride in it. A guy that we got to know really well when he was the head coach in Kitchener, Jay McKee, loved blocking shots. Sometimes he led with his face. He'll tell you about that himself. Not not the way to do it, but you know, guys that do the job well of blocking shots, they do take a lot of pride in it. I'm I'm going to give the sting a, a bit of a mulligan after that tough, tough loss to Sarnia because they had to run into that buzz saw that was Owen Sound then last weekend. But I'm really curious to see how they respond to what I would describe as a bit of a challenge from the head mm-hmm. coach. Again, what Absolutely. price are you willing to pay to win hockey games? I needed guys to block shots. Nobody was out there blocking shots. I'm going to watch them now the rest of the way to see uh, what this sting team is bringing in the, in the stretch drive here. I also just have to say as a former goaltender, like I've, I've had bruises massive on my body from taking like just stopping a shot. These players that block shots without goaltending gear on, you're certifiably insane. I just need to skip that out there. Like you are nuts. I don't get block blocking shots. I understand it's part of the game. In my mind, if I was a player, not a chance. Sorry, coach. I'm out. <laughs> I ain't blocking anything. You know how much that must hurt? Oh, I I've never felt it because I don't know because I played goalie. But to Jay McKee and everyone else that takes pride in it, you're a lunatic. <laughs> I think there, yeah, you're right. There's a little bit of a, a wire that does not connect when you're going down to do that sort of thing for sure. Uh, I know you wanted to talk about the, uh, the OHL's officiating combine, which I, I think is a pretty interesting idea as well. I just like it because they, they have a pipeline for players. They have a pipeline for coaches. Where do they pull officiate officiants, official officials? Wow. My brain is not working today. Officials. Where do they pull officials from? The junior ranks, right? But those guys are working other jobs. They're not really into it as much, the majority of them, or they find former players and say, hey, we think you should be a ref. Come out to this little skate and we'll put a strap on you. So I like that they're doing this kind of combine thing with officiating, especially let's call a spade a spade. With the state of officiating in this this league, anything to bring them up to par goes a long way. And I think something like this, is the OHL's little way of acknowledging that we need to find better officials and we need to find a better way to find those officials. I think you make a great point the way you describe that. And maybe, maybe this is a little bit overdue, like the league finally coming to to terms with the fact that, yeah, I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but the officiating is in the state that it's in. If it's impacting games negatively, if it's getting fans and coaches and players frustrated, it's an element of the game 
that perhaps is ready for some improvement. And, and if you talk to anybody in officiating circles, and maybe it's time to get an official or, or a former official back onto this podcast to talk about it more, but across the board, what I have been hearing for years is that the game really hasn't recovered from the evolution to the four-man, the four-person officiating team. It's as simple as that, because when that happened, the NHL automatically sucked up the very best that the lower leagues had available, who might not have been ready for the show. So you've got the best of the best, but maybe some that still weren't ready for the show. And then you've got a group of brand new people coming in to work with whatever veterans are left at the lower ranks. And, and if the if the game in, in its entirety hasn't recovered from that, maybe this is a way to start helping it. What I hope is that we can attract some good people to this combine who have an interest in being an official. Because I can tell you this, again, outside looking in, but talking to uh, a guy that used to play in this league that is now in the system and splitting his time between the NHL and the AHL, you make a, you make a pretty okay living at doing this. It, look, there's a lot of travel, impacts on the family, et cetera, but you, you can make yourself a decent living as, as an official in this game. I hope that we can attract the people to do the job based on the scrutiny that they face night in and night out based on what they might hear from fans or coaches or broadcasters, because sometimes you and I can be tough on them. And listen, I, I hope that people, I know that people are tough on ice on us. When we screw up, we hear about it. When they screw up, they hear about, it. we try not to make it personal. Some nights are better than others. Overall. I just hope we get the, the good people in the system that are willing to do this. And, and I'm with you credit to the league for trying to address what I, I think we can all acknowledge is at least a little bit of a problem here. Yeah, I, I just love the idea of it to set up a combine for officials because you have that pipeline, then, right? You get a good look at them. You get the officials that are doing junior C, junior B, and AAA games, and they get an idea as to what you're looking for. So if they want to go to that next step, now they're Im- implementing that at the lower levels. So when they're ready to graduate to the OHL, they've already done it, and it's not such a learning curve. But I also think it's because this league is struggling to find officials. If you look at how many years the referees in this league have been referees for, there's a lot of junior guys because it's tough to stay around for the length of Jason faced and the length of some of the other guys in this league. Um, Virtual read. Like, these I, guys have been around a long time. Yeah. Sean. Yeah. yeah. I, I know for a fact that they took in a handful of years ago, they said to a linesman, you're going to, we're going to move you to be a, a referee in the league. And he said, no, I'm, I'm good. Just doing lines. And they said, no, <laughs> you're now a referee. So well, if you want to be a part of this league, you're wearing a strap. So they're struggling to find guys and to keep them in the league and find guys that they can feel comfortable with putting them out on the, on the road every day. Yeah. And don't forget about the extreme other end of that spectrum. When you've got kids and I, I mean, kids like 12, 13, 14 years old who are officiating minor hockey that get threatened by parents on their way out of the rink. They, they tell their stories of, giving up officiating because of the flat out abuse they take, which is wrong on so many levels. I used to ref. I'll never forget. I was like 14 years old in my hometown during a tournament and I'm skating off the ice and there's 20 parents hanging over the bar screaming at me because I apparently missed an offside call or they didn't like a penalty call. I can't remember what it was, but they were screaming. My mom and dad had to come down to the restroom because they were worried about me. Why would I keep doing that? Exactly. So, (laughs) 
while while we're going to sit here and, and talk a little bit about maybe officiating being uh, an area that needs to improve in the game, specifically the Ontario Hockey League, let's let's own our the collective our part in this and recognize that that we as human beings have to play a part in helping officiating get better. It's a game. We are human. Mistakes will be made. But the abuse, like the flat out abuse that some of these young men and women take at the lowest levels, why would like, honestly, I, if that ever happened to my kid, if I'm your parents, I'm like, you're never, you're never calling another game in your life. And if you don't have them when they're 14, you're not going to have them when they're 34. Simple as that. It's a major thing right now around hockey circles. Yep. Referees and linesmen or lines people, pardon me, referees and lines people are dropping like crazy. And there's leagues that are struggling to find them. Let me tell you something that you already know, but you're probably not thinking about. What happens when there are no referees or officials? The game doesn't happen. You need them. They got to be there. So let's start supporting them and building them up and giving them something like this, where it is a combine for those, let's say a 15-year-old referee or linesman wants to do it. Here, bring them out to the combine. Get them started early. What's the harm? Get them around the right people, people that can support them and show them what to do and what not to do. I love the idea. I really do. Yeah, it's an important conversation. I'm glad we just had it. And I'm going to leave my sarcasm of what we could do and just officiate the entire game by video review. I'll park that for now. Just leave it right there. Uh, Before you introduce our guest, let's not forget that he is at the helm of a team that has just made its CHL top 10 debut. And we were in the city where he guides that team not too long ago, uh, watching the Kitchener Rangers lose, which most teams have done since the beginning of December, one regulation loss for this man's team on home ice since the beginning of December. It came versus Sarnia in February. Just let that sink in. No home losses in December. No home losses in January. No home losses yet in March. Oh, it's the end of March. One home loss in February. 23-7-1-1. One, and one in 32 home games so far this season for this man's team. Welcome to the CHL Top 10. And this one's for Don Cameron. If the playoffs started today, (laughs) they'd have home ice advantage throughout the entire Western Conference playoffs. That would be the Windsor Spitfires. They are flying right now. And the list is long when it comes to the greatest Windsor Spitfire of all time. But the list is very short when you ask who's the best setup man the Windsor Spitfires have ever had because he's the all-time assist leader in the OHL. Pretty big deal. Bill Bowler. It's brought to you by Waterloo Region Crime Stoppers. Well, Bill, I think we just joked about it before we started fully recording here, but are there any secrets on how to rack up over 450 OHL points on that whiteboard behind you? or? Yeah, don't back check. Uh... <laughs> Get your wingers to four check and play with a lot of good players. There's the secret. Oh, that's it. That's it. Simple. All right. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're now head coach in Windsor, former opponent in the Ontario Hockey League, who was no slouch himself, top 10 all time in OHL scoring, was on this podcast, Bill, and he said that he, he recalled one of his first games in the old Windsor Arena, said Jovanovski had a hat trick scoring it twice from center ice because the red line's like a blue line. And he said, Bowler had four assists, but I think three of them were from the bench. 
<laughs> Do you want to uh, chirp anything back in his direction? Yeah. No, he uh, that he's funny guy, Mark. Um, everything you deserved in the West was a legitimate point. The the exact opposite, though, in the East there. Uh, there are a lot of phantom assists over there, especially back there before video. Um, and I think he's just changing the name because that was something said about Mark Savard winning scoring titles. There was a few uh, few points that it, it was uh, questionable whether or not he, his stick touched the puck. Real quick on that Mark Savard and the hiring process, how much was there a back and forth of like, hey, I was the better setup guy. Hey, I was the better setup guy. Yeah, no, Mark obviously takes the uh, cake there. He's uh was an excellent player, but uh, as we know, being a good hockey player doesn't mean you'll be a good coach. So um, obviously Mark's resume speaks for itself and what he's accomplished in not only our league, but the national hockey league and um, everything else led me to think he, he would be an excellent coach and be the right guy for this hockey club. But um, yeah, no, Mark's got a ton of stories and uh, obviously just look at the numbers uh, throughout his career. He was one heck of a hockey player. It's impossible to have a conversation with you, Bill, and not talk about those numbers as you still hold the league's all-time record for assists. And I know you're being humble and we can make jokes and have wisecracks here, but that must still feel pretty damn good. Yeah, no, anytime any accolades, recognition, um, it feels good. There's no question. Like anything, though, it will get broken here. Eventually somebody uh, will come along, a Wyatt Johnson or somebody, and, uh, you know, to take that from your uh, from the mantle, so to speak. But the good, the, I was lucky enough. I was healthy, and that honestly, I played a ton of games. I played with a lot of good players. My coaches uh, gave me a ton of ice time. And back then, I was never. I was a guy that I was never invited to World Juniors, or uh, I didn't miss a lot of games. So, like anything, and, and that's a credit to hockey players too: longevity, consistency, um, and again, a lot of that's just good fortune. But um, a lot, a lot of good memories, four good years. And uh, my rookie year, I started out a little slow, um, but eventually uh, I got a ton of playing time in my rookie year. And then um, just because of who, how our team was performing and whatnot, the, the latter three years, I, I just, I played a lot of hockey and my coaches put me in situations to get points. That's what I did. So it was, uh, you're getting on the power play. You better get some points. I'm not sure 318 OHL assists will ever be broken as much nope. as you like to joke about that. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's being touched, Bill. Well, again, I, no one thought Wayne's, you know, and you got over, Alex here. You're, you're right. I'd like to stay uh, atop. It's a fun conversation to have. But, no, there's you look at the talent of some of these kids coming along and uh, with scheduling just the way the game's played. And our the scores in our league this year are absolutely insane. Um, goals are being scored, it seems like, a lot uh, – the games we're playing. So, um, yeah, records are meant to be broken. Obviously, it, there's a, that's a pretty good number, but it wouldn't surprise me if uh, some kid like me from Toronto comes along and breaks it. Bill, how close were you to not being in the OHL? Uh, good question. My older brother went uh, the NCAA route, um, and so I was a later pick. I probably would have been a higher pick, and, and that's coming from scouts and people in the hockey business telling me. Not that's not my opinion, but uh, there was a bit of uh, him and Han. What direction I was going to go? Uh, actually, in my rookie, my first rookie camp, I actually left the Spitfire training camp to go home to make the decision. And uh, it was quite funny because uh, Wayne Maxner at the time thought once I left, I, there was no chance I'd return back to to the Spits, but. Uh, you know, it was a tough decision. It was a decision I wanted to make with my family. And 
uh, I did have options. And so I went home and just realized that the Ontario Hockey League was the best league in the world. And it was the best thing for me. And so uh, I took a couple days to Toronto, called back and said, guys, I'm coming back. And uh, the rest is history. Those conversations about Ontario Hockey League, NCAA are still happening today. And in your role now, of course, as a general manager, recruiting would play some part in that role overall. What do you tell kids today about the OHL versus the NCAA when they're having that conversation? Again, every situation is different. And so what Bill Bowler does not know what's best for some family in Toronto, North Bay, Richmond Hill, wherever you're from. So I think it is a case by case. Um, for me, like I said, my older brother played junior B and then uh, went the NCAA route. Um, it just, it does, it's every situation's different. What OHL team, what opportunity you're going to. Both are great options. And it's the same as the Ontario Hockey League. Or The, the other uh, analogy I use is when people say, is it better to play junior or major midget? And again, depending on where you're getting coaching and what environment, what your family situation is, it's, it's a real hard question to answer. All I know, uh, for me, the OHL was the best route for Bill Bowler. Um, and again, when I talk to prospects and uh, being so close to the uh, American border and the proximity to a lot of excellent USA hockey players, it, it's you're not comparing apples and it's really apples and oranges. It's two different leagues. It's two different environments, two different, uh, you know, uh, whether it be school campuses, et cetera. So each family has their own uh, ideas of what they want for their family and, uh, to be honest, we encourage everything. All we do is promote the Winter Spitfires and what we do for our players, and we think our organization speaks for itself. Looking back to when you went home, Bill, and you and your family made that decision, mm-hmm. you just mentioned numerous times that the OHL was the best route for you. Why at that time was the OHL the best route for you? I think, again, at that time I played uh, midget, had a few points in my uh, in my midget year, and the option was to go play junior B and it just, again, my goal and my, my dream was to, to play with the best. And it just made a lot of sense for me. Um, there was a, a lot of school interest in uh, South of the border, but at that time I was, my focus was hockey. Uh, always believed school was going to be there. And that's still the case today. Um, you know, if your health and your career in hockey might change school for me. Uh, and I still believe that it, it will always be there whether you're uh, going to university at whatever age. So for me, again, it was just uh, looking at it. And at the time back in the city of Toronto where I was going to play junior, I wanted to play against the best. And I thought uh, I could handle playing in the OHL. And uh, so we, we made that decision. Obviously, you would have been focused on the game and your points speak for that, the production you had. But I, I wonder if any of the outside noise might have gotten to you, Bill. And by that, I mean you go in the 13th round and then you start tearing up the league. Were other teams upset with the Windsor Spitfires or was anybody looking at you going, hey, what was this fall into the 13th round? Yeah, again, different times. I I don't know what was said in the draft, but I, I would think somebody might be regretting not taking me in the 12th or the 11th. But uh, <laughs> honestly, I don't know what the thinking was. Obviously, I was a small man at the time. Guys like me, uh, they weren't picked. You weren't picked high, that's for sure. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't like we were hiding. I wasn't hiding from the league. I think people just maybe thought he couldn't – I wasn't good. Like Honestly, I think that was the first and foremost. Then, like I said, my older brother, um, the fact that I wasn't 1,000 or 100% committed to playing in the OHL, I had options. I think that just delayed people. 
or uh, thought, man, it's not worth it. And the chances of him succeeding in our league are slim anyway. So um, I'm guessing that's why I went so late, but you'd have to ask some of the uh, brain trust back then that were making those decisions. You mentioned it earlier, how you got off to a bit of a slow start, but that first year you still had 88 points. Uh, I laughed because that's, I looked at my, cause that is lowest total ever 88 in his rookie season. That's insane. But how, how tough was it to come into not only an OHL as a small guy, as you mentioned, but into, into that barn too? Again, I've, I answered this back in the day, but when you're small, you, you're always small. So it, it wasn't an adjustment at all. It's so, you know, I, like I said, I keep talking about my brother, but I played against older kids and it wasn't a big deal. Windsor Arena was a, it was easy playing there. You didn't, like I said, it was small. You winning a faceoff was a scoring chance back then. So <laughs> it, it was, a, it was very simple. And the reason I thought I'd be successful and it, it's a story that again, Wayne Max for the GM reminded me of, but I was excelling and succeeding in the GTHL or the MTHL back in the day. So I just assumed if you could play at this league and you're a decent player against your peers, what's the difference going to the next league? It's just different cities, different arenas. So the other thing that was quite the story I was just going to share is I had a few points in my minor midget year. And then the GM asked me in this, when he was interviewing me, Wayne Maxter said, well, do you think he'll succeed? And I just said, well, you guys play three 20 minute periods. So I just have more time to get more points was the answer I gave him. And it was quite amusing, but it's true. If you got a lot of points in a 45 minute game, I'd assume you just with extra time, you'd probably get some more. So, uh, that was a funny story that Wayne Max reminded me. I said as a 16 year old kid staring at him. You got to have a pretty big set to say that. I think. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I can't honestly. If you got points, I don't know if there was like a match. That's what I kept saying. Is there kids from another planet coming to this league, or is it just us? It's the GTHL, the OMHA. Like I just played them all, and unless there's some magical players coming from a different world, I I don't see why this won't translate to the OHL and that's not being cocky or confident. It's just, and I, I use that analogy today. If a kid, where we have a draft coming up here? If the kid scores here and we allow him to score and don't ask him to do something he's not capable, why won't he do it at this level? And I get it. It's harder and bigger, better players. But um, if you're an elite player and you're scoring at minor midget, I'm confident you'll get points at this league. I'm not saying that you'll get the, at the same uh, threshold or that, but, um, sometimes we get confused here at higher levels trying to change people to something they're not. So, You mentioned that old Windsor Arena where winning a face-off is a scoring chance. We've had many a story about that arena from guests on this podcast before, but they were all visitors in the arena. Pennies being thrown at them, drinks being dumped on them. How much of a home ice advantage was that barn, Bill? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was crazy. I, I wish somehow you could bring those times back for our players to experience what you went through, just the atmosphere in that building, walking to the room, you literally walk through the snack bar to get to the dressing room and people touching you and you could take a French fry from the gut. Like it was absolutely crazy. Smoking was allowed. You just, you might as well have a smoke on your way back in between periods. It, it was just such, and the fans were over top of you. The fact more people didn't get injured is, is something we joke about all the time. You see pucks leaving the building off sticks and deflections. And at the old Windsor Arena, this was before mesh and net. Those fans at the far end literally were just above the net. Like, it was crazy that uh, not more people got hurt. Thank God they didn't. 
And then the last part, or one more thing that was quite amusing, as a first-year player, I came into the league and my stall was the last in the dressing room, which was a tiny barn. And literally the door, it was so hot in there, the door was always open and it was where the bus stop was. So <laughs> the next stall over was basically the bus stop on Wyandotte Avenue where people were just waiting to get on a bus and I'd be in between periods just looking at them, saying hi and telling them the score. It was a real fun place. I have a ton of stories. Some I can share, some I can't. Okay, so of those stories, of maybe it's one you can't share, but you will. I don't know. Uh, what, when you think of that barn and just some of the things that you saw, what's some of the stuff that stands out besides, obviously, that dressing room? For some reason, it seemed like you were allowed to engage with referees. I remember fans like grabbing referees, hanging over the glass. Um, it was crazy. People... Again, I, the one story, I guess, we gave out videotapes or back in the day VHS cassette tapes, and for some reason our fans weren't uh, agreeing <laughs> with some of the calls made by the officials. And with about a minute 20 left, I actually I don't even know the time. All I remember is the ice was littered with VHS tapes. And for some reason we thought we'd continue the game. And <laughs> for the last 15 seconds we were skating around littered ice with to get the game in. So... The fans let you know, and they were cheering for you, booing for you. Um, and that was a story I remember, uh, the fans there. And we just played the game at the old Windsor Arena. But constant, every game, it seemed like uh, the fans, there was something happened with the fans, whether they were after the opponent, the other coach, a player on the other team, even our guys coming off the ice. If a fan didn't like the way I was playing, he let me know, and then I let him know. And it was a lot of fun. <laughs> If I can just piggyback real quick, Mike, I, Bill, now being in the GM seat, I have to ask, why do you think the general manager and the franchise of the Spitfires continued at that old barn to do handout nights to fans? Because they never took them home. They always ended up on the ice, no matter whether it was VHS, can of Coke night, light yeah. bulb light, whatever it is, they ended up on the ice. Yeah, marketing back then, they should have given <laughs> – or yeah who knows but honestly it was those fans and we miss them here if they could somehow we can transplant some of those uh, fans from the old Windsor Arena here to the WFCU Center uh, it would make for a more entertaining game I can assure you that um, yeah no crazy crazy times back then um, and but again we can't the new buildings are awesome there's no question the amenities um, the parking the dressing rooms but somehow to to play hockey in a building with the fans literally over top of you. Um, it was uh, something, again, talking to all my former teammates and that, it's, it's something that we always talk about and share about how engaged our fans were. So that home ice advantage for you, and we've heard all those stories about visitors coming in and how tough it could be in the Windsor Arena. What about you on the road? Was there a building that stands out to you that was a tough place to play? Uh. Again, just talking to some former teammates, I was with a couple teammates, Kevin McKay and Corey Evans, and they had friends up in the Sioux. One time their bus came in and our fans were shaking their bus and they were literally scared that the bus was going to tip over. And I just wanted to add that one real quick. But <laughs> go going back to when I played, I guess some of years uh, we weren't a very strong team. So I remember playing Detroit and they were stacked and guys like Jamie Allison and uh Cairns and uh, Pat Peak, and I just remember going there we were overmatched and those were uh, some tough nights we had in there and then playing up in the Sioux they had excellent hockey clubs back then um, and I remember going in there and being undermanned and that was uh, 
again, you you were just playing, so it wasn't a big deal. But if you, if I had to pick, those were probably two games or two opponents that really keyed on uh, keyed on me. And uh, there were some long nights, especially losses. So finally, when we my final year, we had a good year, and uh, there was a bit of payback where we gave it to some of those teams. But the old Sioux Arena was a tough building for sure. For your first roughly, I think two two and a half years, you played with a goaltender, Matt Mullen. Uh, I know I knew Matt when I was younger, and he was actually my goalie coach when I played junior. Do you have a good Matt Mullen story for me? Uh, not that I could share. Now, Matty, again, I look I look like a tall guy compared to Matty. <laughs> Matty was an excellent player uh, and a great teammate. But uh, yes, I guess sometimes Matt would always wonder. He'd come to practice and he'd have to put his helmet on and be wet. For some reason, we always thought it was funny to wear his helmet and go in the shower with it and. So, yeah, he never understood why his helmet was wet. But, no, Matty was a great kid, great goalie, and uh, actually he moved out to Sudbury. I think he played his last couple of years with the Wolves. I wanted to ask about another teammate, too, because you were already talking that you weren't the biggest guy coming into a league that had its share of bigger guys. It was a pretty rough league, rougher back in the day. But with a guy like Ed Jovanovski, the Jovel Cup on your side, that's got to make you play five, six inches taller, doesn't it? Yeah, no, Eddie was an unreal teammate. Unreal hockey player. Um, tough question. Who was the best Spitfire of all time? Uh, in recent years, you, you've had your Taylor Halls and your uh, Ellis's that won championships. And then you go, you know, before us, guys like Ernie Goddard scoring 87 goals. But the actual Eddie going first overall, played offense, defense, could fight you, beat you up, uh, physical. Um, for me, he might be the best Spitfire of all time. Unreal guy and uh, only got to play for him a couple of years because he was so good and, and left to go to the National Hockey League. Was he the best defenseman in the O you've seen? Again, based, yes, I'm biased because he's my, uh, he was my teammate, but for what I just said, like everything that he did, there's kids. Yeah. Like, I was lucky enough to watch Ryan Ellis play hockey here for a bit and to see those numbers put up by a defenseman is ridiculous. Um, again, he played world juniors and so in a brief time, that short period that Eddie was in our league, I, in my experience, it's hard-pressed to see a guy better than that. I, I know it always gets tough when we compare eras, Bill, and we could we could spend the entire podcast just talking, you know, comparing one era to another. But we just happened to have a conversation in the media room before our game yesterday with one of the scouts who described the Ontario Hockey League today as soft. I don't want to stir anything up here, but just compared to the way the game was when you played it back in the early to mid-90s, and I mean the, the junior game here, where are we at today in comparison? So again, what the adjectives, I don't know what soft means. Um, there's no question back when we played in the 90s, but if you go prior to me, those players would say my era was soft. But looking at what you had to do to go to the hockey net, and that's where I have a real appreciation for guys that got points or guys that stood in front of the net. The, the things that you were allowed to do to a guy because he wanted to go near the opposition hockey net was absolutely insane. Whereas today you can stand there and no one can touch you. Um, but those guys that paid a price for guys like me to stand on the half wall or Mark Savard to get his points, those guys that were paying a price in front of the net are still feeling it. So for me, that's one thing that's absolutely night and day, back in the day, different errors. Um, you you wanted to get in a point or you wanted to go near the net, you you definitely paid a price. Today's game, 
totally different. Uh, players today obviously are still um, tough in, in their own right, but just a different tough. Uh, they don't have to worry about fighting, but nor did I. I never, uh, I got in a few, but I don't even know if you'd call them fights, but you, you, it was a different toughness. You had to take a little more abuse and being a guy that had the puck a lot, you, you, they gave me extra equipment in the playoffs for a reason. So um, just a different game. And I know our players, you look at a kid like Wyatt Johnson or, no, he's not soft at all. He's tough as nails, and he would have got 100 points in our league 10 years ago or 20 years ago. If I could just follow up on that real quick, Popey, uh, you wouldn't describe them as fights. What was your strategy, Bill, when it came time? Like, you're like, uh-oh, this, I'm going to have to go with this guy. Why, why is my stick not in my hand? I don't know where it went. Uh, no, it, they were by accident or somebody jumped me. They weren't a lot. I was too busy or I, I liked playing hockey more than sitting in the box and I didn't mind a two-minute hook or slash because, you know, you needed a bit of a rest, but wasted five minutes over there when you can be on the ice getting points didn't make sense to me. All right, so let's look into the little crystal ball and say Jean-Luc Foudy gets sent back to Windsor and Wyatt Johnston is inching closer towards your record. And let's say they're both back next year miraculously too. He's at 318, ties you. you got to come back and you get one player to play with on your wing. Is it Steve Gibson or Tim Finley, or is it someone else? Oh, it's Gibby and Finley. Those, they understood what I was all about. Foodie and Wyatt wouldn't understand. They'd want the puck, and I'd want it. We'd be arguing. So, no, those guys, Foodie, again, we're still hoping uh, this guy shows up for our team this year. But um, looking back, honestly, we I had – you see some of these teams that put together these super lines and – you know, for me, uh, finally, we, we got a big left winger and Dave Roach who came back and ended up getting 55 goals. Uh, we were a pretty good line, but um, I, I never had those two guys that were elite, nor was I at the time. Like I said, I wasn't a world junior player or anything, but um, we worked for everything we got back then. And Tim Finley and Gibby uh, went on to some pro hockey and were excellent, excellent players in their own right. Tim Finley's still a local guy here. Um, his kid plays for the LaSalle Vipers with our junior B club. So, um, again, just tougher, little different style back then, but those guys found a way to put the puck in the net. You talked earlier about some of the modern era players that have meant so much to the Spitfires organization, the Halls, the Ellis's, et cetera. And that gets me thinking, Bill, about the incredible success that the Spitfires have had three Memorial Cups in nine years. And I think, I mean, just from the outside looking in, sometimes it's almost overshadowed because there's another team in this Ontario Hockey League that gets a whole lot of attention. How much pressure did you feel coming in, taking Warren Reichel's place, given the success that this franchise has seen in the decade before you got here? Yeah, no, what this organization's accomplished here it's it's remarkable and a ton of credit goes to you know warren and bob bugner but uh i was lucky enough to work with warren for the last four or five years i was part of the last memorial cup and i was actually start of the the rebuild so i coached with bob bugner uh when they first bought the team so i seen i was there for the first uh two years of that kind of rebuild um and again just to win and especially the Memorial Cup and then when we hosted, you, you're so many good things have to happen. And, uh, you know, f- filling Warren's steps, it, you know, you're not going to try to do what he did. That'd be impossible. That'd be like asking, we talk about numbers or records, but you, you learn a lot. And for me, I, you know, I want to be relevant in the sense I want our team to be, and that's where we are this year. I want to be relevant. I want us to be in contention. 
Um, the great thing about our last Memorial Cup championship is Warren put a team together that gave us a chance to win, and we did. Um, when you do that, though, there is some uh, setbacks, obviously, because uh, in order to get those types of hockey clubs, or you usually have to give up something, and whether that's your draft board or or some young players. So uh, we're in a good place right now. But uh, I guess to answer your question is, is uh, I learned a ton from Warren and. Uh, his fingerprints are still on this hockey club today, a couple of picks. And obviously Warren and I are in contact all the time as, as friends. So uh, really impressive 10 years here in Spitfire land. Hopefully we can repeat some of it. When you were talking about uh, Savvy earlier, you mentioned how just because you're a good player doesn't make you a good coach. You were a good player. You coached for two years, 05 to 07. What did you think of coaching? Uh, I loved it. I actually enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> Um, at that time, I was uh, my wife and we had three children, and it just didn't make sense for my family. Similar to your previous question about what's the best route for me, uh, if I won the lottery or my, you know, if I was a billionaire, I probably would still be in coaching. But uh, I had to make the hard decision to to raise a family, and we we wanted my wife to stay home, so I couldn't coach. It just it made more sense. And similar to what I mentioned earlier, I always felt I could go back to coaching. I could go back to the role I'm in now. Um, so that's, that was the decision, but I enjoyed coaching, um, a lot of good players that back then I played for, and I, I feel I, uh, you know, I still in contact with some of them and, uh, help them get their pro careers to, to make a living at the game. So real rewarding. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed, a, I enjoyed it a lot. When we broadcast at the WFCU center, we're basically staring directly across at the bill bowler banner hanging in the rafters there. Is it weird? That's strategy the- by the GM, yeah. eh, just for the record. Intimidation. Sending even- a message. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you walk into work in the building where your banner hangs. That's got to be a little bit odd. Again, it has nothing to do with me. Those people, whoever made those decisions back then, thought that was a good decision. So uh, they, they hoisted my number. And uh, the real, again, we talk about great number nines. Uh, Adam Graves was, and that's how stupid I was. When I first came to... <laughs> Windsor, they asked me what number I wanted, and I wore number nine in minor hockey, so I'm, I'll wear nine. That's what I like. Not knowing that, you know, a couple of years prior to me, arguably one of the best Spitfires of all time, Adam Graves, who went on to have an illustrious NHL career, but he wore number nine. So um, I just like to add that because Gravy's such a great ambassador for not only hockey, but for the Spitfires as well. Um, but no, again, I just it's great. I come to the rank and stare at my I'm just glad they changed it because when they put up my original banner, Steve Horn here, who's been here for 30 years, thought he'd get a picture of me when they hung it up. I was a 40-year-old man, and they're like, God, he looked old playing in the OHL. So finally they got a new picture of me when I was a teenager, and I liked that better. I only got one chin, so it's good. They had a picture of you at the like when they put up the banner on the banner? Correct. <laughs> when my banner was up, it wasn't Bill, the 18-year-old captain of the Windsor Spitfires. It was Bill Buller. The forty-year-old insurance salesman. So yeah, it was quite amusing, but uh, it's been corrected, and now it's a, a it's a good young Bill Bowler. It looks good. It looks That's good. pretty funny, actually. I really like that story. Uh, you, you talk about ca- uh, captain of the team in that final year. You had Mike Kelly as a coach that year. What was he like? Great guy, Mike. Uh, we had a real good team, um, and uh, Mike Kelly. Geez, he's been everywhere now uh, in the NHL and coaching everywhere but he was the I don't want to say that my first coach but um, he was a guy that really spoke to the players Mike included me in 
asked me what my opinion was on certain things, whether it be practice times, do we need a day off? And that was the first time I kind of thought, okay, coaching. And I just looked at it differently. And so Mike, for me, there's, it wasn't a surprise that Mike's gone on to coach at everything from hockey Canada to NHL to uh, you could see just the way he was prepared. But I think the way he dealt with people is, uh, is the real reason why he's such a great coach. When it comes to your professional career, Bill, you were playing in Vegas before the Golden Knights were playing in Vegas. What was it like as a hockey player in Sin City? Yeah, it's uh, we got knocked out of the playoffs here, and then I got called up uh, to Vegas. It's, without a doubt, the best place uh, that I've ever played and the best city in the world, in my opinion. It was This was before Vegas is Vegas. To me, Vegas now is a... It's a New York City. It's too big. Back when I was there, it was it was just an amazing place. Um, and then the support we got, again, uh, crazy fans, believe it or not, in the desert and supported our team, the Las Vegas Thunder. We had excellent hockey players, uh, excellent team. And like anything, you're playing hockey and then you're after the game, you're on Las Vegas Boulevard in beautiful weather and waking up golfing and going to practice. It's uh it was quite the lifestyle for a 21-year-old. I'd, uh, if I could uh, go back, I definitely would because uh, those days were absolutely amazing. Tons of fun. You talked about how good that team was. 57-17-0-8 in that 95-96 year, and that's despite your head coach. Any good stories about Chris McSorley? Yeah, I got lots of stories about Chris. Uh, so, yeah, we uh, – Anyways, so no, not none that I can share. No, Chris was awesome for me. He seen me in a game actually in Kitchener. I think that's why he liked me. Um, the previous year, I got suspended. Kitchener knocked us out, and at the end of the game, uh, I did something that Chris thought was a pretty good play. Uh, I, I retaliated and did something. Uh, they seen I could get points, but they also seen a part of me that uh, was enticing to them. So, uh, no, Chris was good to me. Um, Excellent hockey club. Uh, my first, yeah, it was like, we, we had a, if you look through the names on that team, uh, some high end hockey players. And uh, for me, Chris gave me a chance to play. And again, he's a guy still coaching and owning teams in Switzerland and doing a lot of good things. So uh, Chris was funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sense we've gotten from the occasional Chris McSorley story that has popped up on this podcast before. Hey, you caught me off guard. Here's a quick one. So we're at the practice rink and, Somehow somebody touched the puck or tipped it, or maybe they didn't. And so we come to the rink in Santa Fe or what was the hotel? We had a our practice rink was in a casino. Anyways, we see in there practice at 10 in the morning. Chris is on the ice with a spray can <laughs> and he's got, he's done four quadrants. And in one quadrant, he wrote team first, me first, sometimes team, and then sometimes me. <laughs> so you could go stand anywhere. And he yelled at us to go stand where you all think you belong. So all the whole team, 23 men skate out and we all stand in team first. And he didn't believe we were all telling the truth and kind of got upset and raised his voice. So uh, that's a Chris McSorley story that I can share. He was, he wasn't sure if we, we all were uh, buying in and to see your coach at uh, a minute before practice on his knees with spray cans and black paint on the ice was rather amusing. Did he make you guys move squares? Uh, I forget how the story ended, but that's how it started. <laughs> Which quadrant did you stand in? 
We, like I said, all 23 men went to team first. Some of us were lying, apparently. I don't know, but after we all stood together in that quadrant, we, I've, my brain goes foggy on what happens next. That's fair. That's fair. I understand it was lots of things going on, including Las Vegas. Uh- yeah, tonight, we went out the night. We had someone's birthday, so we were out the night before. <laughs> like you guys needed an excuse. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> Somebody was celebrating every night. Nine games, Bill, in the National Hockey League with the Columbus Blue Jackets. What do those nine games mean to you? Yeah, obviously a great uh, moment the first time you step on NHL ice and a real proud moment for my family. And uh, So, again, you just keep playing. That was, as a kid, you always wanted to say you played in the NHL. And for me, uh, you know, I thought it could have happened sooner for me. I thought... Uh, things were different. That's why I went to the IHL. I actually had a, an NHL couple deal offers, but I didn't think I was ready for the NHL at that age. And then it, it took a little longer than I anticipated. But the reality is, was I wanted to make sure I could say I, I stepped on NHL ice and I could say I played in the league. So um, just an amazing accomplishment uh, for me personally, but more importantly for my family. Um, a lot of sacrifices by a lot of people. So um, looking back, you know, the Columbus Blue Jackets gave me a chance and uh, I owe them uh, tremendously for what they, they did for me and my family. Not just the chance, but NHL points too. How did the, how did you earn the first assist? Uh, that I don't know. I should add more though. My, I, I remember making a couple nice plays and guys not finishing. That's the problem when you're a passer. You need somebody else. And so when people always say, what's better, a goal scorer? A goal scorer, 100%, he can score. You can get a goal with no assists impossible to score a goal uh, just with an assist. So uh, honestly, I'm trying to think what the play was and I don't remember, but I do remember some, I was in Los Angeles making a couple nice plays and we didn't score. And I remember being wide open at the side of the net and somebody didn't pass me. For some reason, I'm remembering those two plays, but not my, my assist for some reason. But um, it's, yeah, it's not like uh, two, you'd think you'd remember that. The, the couple hundred in the OHL, those you don't remember. I should be able to remember those NHL ones, but I don't. I'm sorry. To assist, nothing to shake your head at. You should have borrowed Savvy's trick of just getting assists while sitting on the bench. Yeah, that's <laughs> I was. I don't know if the NHL allowed that. I know the Eastern Conference did that back in the OHL. They didn't really care. In the West, they made sure and looked at every every goal, but in the East, I know they didn't. See, now, now I think we may be bringing up some controversy, and this is good, Farzi, because I took a look – Bill, in your fourth year when you were the captain in um, what year would that have been, 95, 96, I think? <clears throat> anyway, uh, Savvy led the league at 139. David Ling, who we had on this podcast, was at 135, tied with Bill. So top three point earners from that season we've had on the podcast. But now, both Ling and Savvy playing in the East. Oh, no, it's not even a debate. If you like, it, Everyone knows this. This isn't conjecture. This isn't me trying to be funny. It's... Even today, if you ask all our friends in the East and West, the West is a, it's a tougher conference. So, uh, And it was tough for getting points, too. Um, going back to your time in Columbus, what was that first game like when you're walking out? Yeah, no, it was a, a bit of a blur because uh, I was called up to New Jersey. Um, so, again, it was a lot of emotion. I remember going on the ice just uh, – flying in late or the day up, but regardless, I remember coming back after my first shift and just saying, wow, I did it, you know? So, uh, and there was a couple teammates of mine that, you know, give you a quick 
uh, nudge or a, a, a jolt saying congrats or whatnot. So uh, real good time. And again, I know family were back home watching and just leaving the rink after the game. It was it was something you you've accomplished. It was something you check mark done it and uh, something you always have. So awesome time. When the time came, Bill, to hang him up as a player, what led to the decision? Like, did you feel like you were ready and this was – I'm, I'm thinking just based on your age, you knew and you were probably transitioning, but what led to that decision? Yeah, no, if, uh, unfortunately, my, my whole career came to an end too abruptly. Um, an injury caused uh, – I had a lower abdomen injury, sports hernia. Uh, long story, but to kind of summarize here uh, – I had a legitimate chance in Nashville. So after my Columbus year, Nashville claimed me off waivers and uh, I went to camp, kind of hurt myself, uh, tweaked something and wasn't myself. Uh, and then that year ended up getting a groin injury um, and just wasn't the same player. So then the following year, the Boston Bruins signed me and uh, I went to camp and failed all my medicals. Um, and so I just kept trying to play, thinking it would go away. And it obviously it didn't go away. I ended up trying to play in Europe. Uh, less demanding schedule, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, uh, in my final year, it was I knew, and I was very fortunate because I ended up winning a championship under Butch Goring in Germany. But I knew the end was there. I couldn't skate, waking up hurt. Um, I was on painkillers and drugs to try to get through games just because of the pain in my abdomen, and which led to a bad back, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's kind of when I knew you know, it's just, it wasn't worth it. And for me, it wasn't even fun for two reasons. I wasn't the player I was. I wasn't playing hockey the way I liked it. And it hurt to play. It hurt to skate. And I just, I, it was inevitable. And I knew that this wasn't, uh, I had to move on. And so quietly I, I left and decided maybe the coaching, that's all I knew at the time. We talked about it, got into coaching uh, back in the GTHL major midget. Uh, had a lot of fun there, went to a TELUS Cup with the Don Mills Flyers, and then the Windsor Spitfires called, and the rest is history there. Like I said, coached for a couple of years and then uh, took a sabbatical and then ended up coming back. But, uh, again, a, a long story. You mentioned my next question, so it works perfect. What was it like playing under Butch Gore? Yeah, again, back then it was uh, – if you look to coaching and you hear different podcasts and different guys talk about coach, it was just different. The, the end in-depth coaching and video that these kids get today. And, you know, coaching back then, it was, it was more motivation. It was more uh, kind of what to do shift by shift, what the other team was doing. And um, there wasn't a lot of technical stuff coming out of Butch. Having said that this man was a Stanley cup champion and, he kind of seemed to know what to say, when to say it, and what buttons to push. And it obviously worked for, for the Crayfeld Penguins. We ended up winning. We were a lower seed and went on to have a great run and uh, an amazing time, too. I talk about Vegas, how fun that was. My uh, two months in Germany winning a championship was, if I could somehow replicate th those times, hanging out with those group of teammates and having that kind of fun both on and off the ice, it was uh memories that you know you just cherish and somehow wish you could go back to but uh they're in the uh books back home in the basement they're up in the brain here so awesome time in germany thinking of a player of goring's stature makes me think of the players you must have watched growing up bill who who did you try to model your game after or who as a hockey player inspired you as a player um 
growing up, my favorite player was Bobby Clark. Um, I remember, uh, I don't know if it's a true story, but I, apparently he was on an outdoor rink and somebody seen him. And so again, that was in my head growing up. I was just a little guy I used to go to outdoor rinks, Dieppe, and I always tried to play good and think that some scouts walking down Cosburn Avenue are going to see me out on the ice. And so some reason, some way, Bobby Clark and the Philadelphia Flyers at the time, I don't know if I liked the jersey as a young kid, but growing up, Bobby Clark, uh, I actually won a public speaking award. My speech was on Bobby Clark and back home and with some of the hockey and baseball trophies, there's uh, one academic award and that was for my speech on Bobby Clark. So he was, a, I don't know why, I just loved the, I don't know if I played like him, I don't think I did, but just for whatever reason, the no teeth, the captain, the story that I think, I don't even know if it's a true story, that's how he made the NHL. Um, so Bobby Clark, and then I think as I got older, I think uh, even though he shoots right and I don't like comparing because I shot left, but a player like Adam Oates, I think there were some similarities in the way I played, you know, watching him play and make plays and uh, seem to know when and who's open. I, I, I think if you had to guess, maybe him, but it's a, t- it's a terrible uh Comparison only because he shoots right, and I, I'm not a righty. Uh, speaking of no teeth, did you still have? Do you still have all of yours? No, no, of course not. Somebody, <laughs> uh, forget. Uh, I know the story, but yeah, some jerk on the other team hit me from behind in front of my bench, and uh, I lost my two teeth in Houston, Texas, one night. And uh, Dave Tippett was nice enough once I got cleaned up and stitched up to to allow me to play left wing, and when I got back and. Uh, I was, I got a bit of payback, not as much as I'd like, but no, these aren't my, these are, the dentist gave me these two. How'd you get your payback? Uh, just, uh, again, I had my stick in my hand and I gave him a whack on his shin pad. So it was good. Gotta go in the back of the legs. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if it was a shin pad. I think. Neither do I. Again, yeah. You gotta check the video. My brain goes, I get, I know a lot of stories <laughs> from a certain point and I go, I forget a lot of things. We'll find it. We'll find it. Maybe that's cause, just because you thought the game so much and so well for so long that the brain's getting tired. Um, yeah. Now as a general manager, as a guy who is obviously a, a setup guy first, but do you think it's harder to teach someone how to score goals or is it harder to teach someone to be a setup guy? Tough question. Uh, making people, again, teaching the problem I, you always hear guys that you can't teach a guy how to score goals and no, you can't turn somebody into Ovechkin or McDavid or that, but just like anything, you can help. You can give some input, some suggestions, some advice as to what may generate a scoring chance more in that. So um, having said that being aware, like sometimes you talk about being a smaller guy, just a kid carrying the puck up the ice guys that seem comfortable aren't really worried about what's going on. Other guys get the puck. They seem like there's a lot going on around them and they're terrified. And they're, whereas uh, to teach that kind of calmness with the puck and to know who's actually going to hit you and how to absorb that hit. Those are skills. I don't know if you can teach, but you can, you can, you can help. And there's certain drills you can do, but um, finding a guy to score a goal is it's a, that's a tough, tough, thing to do in obviously the national hockey league but even in our league to find you know pure goal scores um is real tough so to answer your question i think it'd be harder teaching a guy how to put the puck over the line as to opposed to just giving it to him 
Speaking of being a general manager, January the 10th is a big day in this league. The fans love it. The media likes to speculate about it. Can you take us through a, a day in the life of an Ontario Hockey League general manager leading up to or on the trade deadline? Again, they're just dates. Uh, I like to think my job's 365, and so you see today the NHL trade deadline's coming up. And Like, if you you can do all your work on that day, and it's the last day, but sometimes, you know, I think uh, a lot of mistakes are made today, and only one team can win. Uh, so even though January 10th, it's it's just a reminder that you're you're done making transactions for that year, but I think you're allowed to, and I know you're allowed to make deals all along, but um, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have so many transactions in here in Windsor, but sometimes that a necessity. And I think what's important is a lot of times people don't understand. A lot of it comes from the player. It's not the team sending the player away. The player wants to change the scenery, the agent, the mom, the dad, uh, whoever. Um, but for me, you're always trying to, to improve your team and, and create depth in every position. Uh, and like I said, there's sometimes I'm sure the Spitfires will go all in and maybe try to do something and maybe have a setback for three or four years. But right now for me, um, last year during the COVID year, we really liked our team. We thought we had an excellent team with the 2000 born players that were going to be on our team. We think we have a real good team this year. Uh, and we think we're, we're set up well for next year too. So, um, January 10th was tough for me because you always want to do more. Um, but you also, you also have to be, uh, you know, considerate and conscientious about next year's team and next year's fans and sponsors and the young people that are on the team now. So uh, right now I want to be relevant. Uh, we think we have a real good team, like I said, for the last this little window for three years here. Uh, who knows what happens after that? But um, January 10th for me was a, a day where it's tough because you, you want to do more. But, again, there's a reason um, – you only have so many picks and the Windsor Spitfires will be around next year, two years, three years. So you can't sell the future all the time to, to have success. And, and we we're real happy with what happened on the 10th because we, we, we made some moves. We tweaked our roster throughout the year and we're still competing for the Western conference. So we're real happy that we didn't have to give up anything, uh, any young players, any future assets and our draft covered and our, our, our draft grid is, is looks promising for the next couple of years as well. So uh, exciting day to fans for everybody. Uh, the trade deadline, January 10th for guys like me, it's uh, I'd like to think I work 365 days. If I could just follow up there, cause you mentioned COVID and what you thought the team might've looked like in the season that we lost again, just from the management's perspective, how how difficult was that year? And not only being away for as long, because we had some stutter steps in there that we thought we might start and then we didn't, but then even coming back to try to build the team and, and play through this season too. Yeah, no, it was, uh, we're talking hockey, but obviously outside of hockey, it was terrible the whole year for everybody involved. But speaking OHL hockey, yeah, we, it really, uh, not only the Spitfires, there are other teams that were, had it worse, and but we really thought our team on paper and, like I said, we had Connor Corcoran, Angle, Douglas, 2,000-born players that were excellent, a Fenisai of Nashville, second-rounder, and then we had those O2s of the Foodies and Coolies, and now you have Wyatt Johnson. We had a real good piece uh, team uh, on paper, and uh, it's a shame that that year went, went uh, away. But, again, coming back this year, uh, we liked our roster. We didn't know how good we'd be. We knew we would be a, a contender. We knew we would be uh, – in, in the mix a bit and then 
when we didn't receive John Luke Foodie to lose an O2 born player for absolutely nothing. Um, that hurt a bit. Uh, but again, the emergence of some of our young guys and uh, the great job the players have done in our coaches, it, it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, we've kind of moved past that and, and we've performed fairly well. So uh, COVID again, let's hope it's over. Uh, it should be over. And the fact we're playing hockey and uh, we had a game yesterday against Flint with 5,000 people in the building, uh, home team won. So it was a great, great, uh, great day here in Windsor. And let's hope for some more. I felt bad for you, Bill, when you were rhyming off all those names. And then I almost felt bad for the Windsor franchise. Almost. <laughs> almost. And then I remembered we're there this week and we'll look, get to look at all those Memorial Cup banners and then I won't feel so bad. Um, but for somebody who was talking about going to the NCAA route before the draft, hence the late draft pick, and then deciding to go to Windsor, coaching in Windsor, and then being the GM in Windsor, what does that franchise mean to you? Yeah, no, it's... if. Not only me, and that's we, we're trying to. We're actually looking at doing a piece. The amount of people that have played for this hockey club that still live in this community, I'm sure that happens in a ton of OHL communities and cities. But for some reason, Windsor, once you become a Spitfire, once a Spitfire, always a Spitfire. For me, and we talk about the trade deadline or that when I played here, I remember every deadline, my name being considered, and the simple answer was no. I'm a Spitfire. I'm not. I'd rather lose with the Windsor Spitfires than win with the London Knights or the Kitchener Rangers. And that was just, a, again, a different time. And uh, But that was my mindset back then. So um, to come full circle as a player, uh, I've been gone through a bunch of different coaches and ownerships. And uh, then when I came in, I under Steve Riolo as a coach and then trans, uh, transferred over with Bob Bugner, Warren Reichel, and Peter Dobrich to the new ownership group and, Again, working and just being a part of this organization, I think it's obvious where my uh, heart lies. But uh, just try to keep doing a good job, and, and they, until they change the keys on me, uh, I'll keep coming in. <laughs> at this point of the season, Bill, given uh, where the Spitfires are at, and it's been a nice little run lately, not too far behind those Flint Firebirds anymore, was there any point this season uh, where you thought, boy, boy, it might not work out the way I had hoped? No, uh, again, we knew how good you know. You don't know what other teams are going to do. That's the, in sports. You have an idea, but if some team decides to go all in and sell all their kids and sell all their draft picks, there's nothing you can do. We knew we would be good. Um, how good, again, we win tomorrow night. We're sitting in first place in the Western Conference. So we like where we're at. But, no, it, it took time, but it's understandable, too. We lost our head coach, Trevor Latowski, to the Montreal Canadiens a little later than uh, expected. So, you know, trying to find a coach and then bringing in Mark and for him to to learn his coaching staff and to learn our league and some new players. And, again, every team went through the whole year off and two years of rookies. But we had a lot of transition here with coaches and our athletic therapist, uh, Mark Packwood, went to Phoenix. So there was a lot of change. So what if we like to come out of the gates a little better and won some more games? Yes, but um, to be quite honest, there was never a panic or a concern of what the team looked like or our ability to – to be, uh, again, uh, in the mix at this time of the year with about 10, 15 games left. Uh, it wasn't a worry or a concern, uh, but there's no question you always want to win. And when we were losing earlier, I, uh, as a general manager, you got to calm people down and kind of explain what I just did. It's, it, takes, it takes time to 
to bring that continuity or to bring teams together and for coaches to learn one another and their players. It's, it doesn't happen overnight and it's not, it's not easy. And so a ton of credit goes to the coaches and players. We had one of your old assistant coaches from your time in Hamilton on this podcast and Rick Natras. He was absolutely hilarious on this podcast. Was he as funny as an assistant coach? Yeah, I did play good for him, so he probably didn't think I was too funny. That was I was in the old great IHL where I was playing in Las Vegas. I just told you it's the greatest place in the world to Houston, Texas with Dave Tippett. And then I came to Hamilton and I got back playing OHL hockey in the American League, basically. So it was a little bit of a, a drop for me off the ice and just lifestyle and got back to, again, I'm joking. Hamilton was a fun place to play. We had a real good team too. Um but I didn't perform as well, and I wasn't the player I was. But, no, Rick Natris, uh, Danny Day, who was part of that staff too, obviously great players in their own right. They were a lot of fun to be around. And, uh, yeah, I just I wish I would have performed a little better for those guys. All right, we're getting to that point in the podcast where I know Chris has, like, one more question he needs to ask before he asks it. I want to ask this one because I got to thinking about it, Bill, when you mentioned once a spitfire, always a spitfire. Uh, I'm positive he's never played a game for the team, but he's been around it for as long as I can recall. And Popey and I both love him. Steve Bell, the Beller. What is, what is, I mean, are you going to give him a Jersey retirement someday? Are you going to hang up a mic? Like what kind of retirement ceremony, if ever for that guy? What a beauty. I just frick. He, he might be around longer than me. He, he knows <laughs> this guy refuses to go away. Beller's an amazing guy. Um, so again, I don't know if we named the press box after him or a street. I don't know. Again, if, We'll do something for Steve Bell. There's no question. This guy's legendary. He's right up there with the guys I just mentioned, uh, Ernie Goddings, uh, Ed Jovanovskis, Marcel Pronovos, Bob Boudner, Warren Reichel. Steve Bell is that guy. Still works with our team now. Um, and maybe Beller, he's a little more open. He's a better storyteller than me, but um, I'm going to share this one about Beller. So we, Bill Bowler's trying to break the Spitfire record, I believe it or not, and a sponsor, the Lumberjack, was offering, can Bill Bowler break eating the most rib record or something <laughs> crazy like this? And it was maybe a, a night before a game, and instead of – I was over 19, so this was good. Instead of washing down my ribs with a, a soda pop, I, I think somehow there was a – Steve showed – anyways, the team wasn't too pleased because eating my ribs, having a couple beers before the game wasn't uh, acceptable. I was 19. So I think Beller got his, his uh, hand whacked a bit for that one, but um, tons of great stories, tons of bus trips with uh, Freddie and Beller. When I was a player, uh, then I was coaching and seeing Beller around the rink. What a guy and uh, unbelievable call of the games. And uh, he's a real good storyteller. He has a lot more than me. Ribs before the game, a couple moles and Canadians, Beller gets his hand slapped, but, Bill goes out, puts up four assists against London. Three on the bench, though. Three, yeah. He was on the bench for three of them. Oh, no, wait. He was in the West. I forgot. Be- Beller's grabbing you the next day. <laughs> ribs and beer, buddy. Let's go. <laughs> I'm sure there's some good ribs, and this is the time where I normally have my last question. Played in the 90s, coached in the early 2000s, now the general manager. Where is the go-to Bill Bowler pizza spot in Windsor? Oh, tough. You can't do that to me because I got too many friends and too many sponsors. That's rhyme them all off. <laughs> no, I can't. No. Next question. No, here, I'll say this about pizza. Everyone thinks when I'm a Toronto guy, Windsor pizza is good, but it's not like I hope people don't. The people here in Windsor get mad at it. It's nothing like 
I think it's better pizza in Toronto. So that's going to be my answer. There's a lot of good pizza, but the it's not as elite. Everyone talks about Windsor pizza like it's something. I don't know if Windsor should be famous for their pizza. There's other things Windsor's better at than pizza. That's amazing because wow. I'm pretty. I'm newly introduced to the Windsor pizza, and I <clears throat> I think it's the best damn pizza anywhere. So what's better in Windsor than the pizza besides the Spitfires? Their fans' accuracy of throwing things from their seats. That, uh, <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Windsor's got a lot of quality, good, positive things in the community. And I just, I'm joking about the pizza because honestly, I don't, I don't see it. I don't think it, it's good pizza, but it's not as good. It's just, I think the pepperoni shaved or shredded and yep. people from other places think that's a big deal, but um, I don't. We had pizza yesterday from one of our good sponsors. The pizza here, the WFCU is good. Um yeah, I can't because then I'm going to miss somebody. And I'm not. We have lots of good pizza guys there. I love it. We're going to have a someday. It's going to be Bill Bowler, architect of championship team in Windsor. Thanks Anthony, the pizza's okay. Armando's, Antonino's, Capri, uh, <laughs> Chachi's. Honestly, if I go, my just drive down my street in Bell River here. We got <laughs> we got more pizza joints than homes. Every so. time we drive down, I always show far. I'm like, look, another pizza joint, pizza joint, pizza joint, pizza yeah. joint. No, that's good. Fantastic. Well, Bill, this has been great. Sorry, Naples. Naples Naples is good pizza. Yeah, they're all good. Hopey, we got a lot of places to still get to. You get a pizza there, too. You get pizza anywhere. (laughs) Seriously. I'm willing to try them all. So am I. Well, I'll get you some. When you're next time in town, I'll get you each one slice. That's all you get. (laughs) So that's all we need. (laughs) COVID's been tough. Dave Brown in Erie is buying us beer on $2 beer nights at the ballpark in the summer. And Bill Bowler is going to buy us one slice of pizza. We're living large now. Maybe. I'll cut it in half. (laughs) Bill, this has been lots of fun. Thanks a lot for making the time for us. Thanks for having me. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.